calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to Story Smack. Hello, my name's A. Kovacs, audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. My name is Scott Sigler, author in San Diego Comic-Con has completely kicked my ass. <laughs> I'm cashed out. And this is episode 22 of Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. And today we have a guest here to talk about his favorite movie. Welcome to the lair, Rob Reed. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. Yeah, it's great. Rob is the founder of the Rhapsody Music Service and is the author of the sci-fi novel Year Zero and the upcoming uh, novel After On. Yes? Yep. No longer upcoming. It comes out today. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. We, is, got, we set this, this up to drop today. This is the very day. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're recording this a little before, but you know, yeah. it's going to come yes. out today. So the day we're launching this is August 1st, 2017, mm-hmm. and the book is out from Delray Books. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk a little bit about the book, but first, you have picked your favorite movie to bring onto the cast to talk to us, and it's Danny Boyle's first movie, Shallow Grave. Yeah, and I'll, I will say it may be a little bit of an overstatement to say favorite movie. Okay. I don't really quite have one. I wanted to pick a movie that folks may not know coming onto here. Um, I always say Raiders of the Lost Ark. You've probably discussed that many times. Not, not yet, too much time. yet. We'll get to that next but time. Yeah. I have nothing new to say about Raiders of the Lost Ark that has not been said by other people. And I, I saw- love the idea of you sharing like you know this yeah. is a movie everybody should see but it i is. nobody's heard of. nobody's heard of it everybody's heard of slumdog millionaire mm-hmm. most people have heard of train spotting his Most later did. work this was his first movie uh and it is extraordinary i saw it in theaters when it came out which was pretty random because it was probably on three screens for nine seconds <laughs> and um it blew my mind and it stayed with me for years and years and years and then i rewatched it i don't know maybe 10 years ago and it was every bit as brilliant as I remembered it. And I rewatched it for today's purposes. And it's even more brilliant great. than I remember. And it's so rare that a movie holds up so well as you change yeah. in your life. And I feel, I feel like I rewatched it too. I watched it in the theaters in Nashville. I was in that, living in Nashville at the time. And I've had the same experience yeah. that here it is 20 years later. And I still think new, great, intricate things. It really shows what Danny Boyle was going to become yeah. back in the day. Yes. And the only explanation for the fact that I like it more and more, and the fact that you like it more and more, is that over time, we must have both become more evil. I know. <laughs> well, because, um, this is, this is not, a, a, not movie. a movie about nice people. This is a movie about the hidden evil inside many of us, probably mm-hmm. not all of us, but certainly three of us, <laughs> not the three of us here on this uh, podcast, or, or but the three characters. Or is it? Or is it? it? Yes. Or is it? Yeah. So Shallow Grave stars Carrie Fox, a very young Ewan McGregor, and... 
For you sci-fi fans out there, my favorite Doctor Who, Christopher Eccleston. He's the ninth Doctor. Early Christopher Eccleston. He's phenomenal in this. Yes. And as did we mention, this was Danny Boyle's first feature film. Mm-hmm. I first, think we did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. And uh, and so this episode is about Shallow Grave. We're going to get into that movie in a second. But first, Rob, tell us a little bit about After On, which is out, which is out today. Yes, yes. it is out today. So um, because we're in audio, I'm going to actually start with the audiobook. The audiobook, I personally, I listen to a huge number of audiobooks. And when I pick them, this is the only media that I do this in. I pick them in part on the basis of length because I have an Audible account, like one of the platinum plans. And so every book costs the same amount. Mm-hmm. When I see a book that is 22 hours long, mm. that's a four times a better value than a five hour long book. <laughs> this is a long book. And yes. the audiobook, I've got some fabulous cast members. I've got John Hodgman. I've got Felicia Day. Oh, I've wow. got Patrick Rothfuss. I've got Tom Merritt. Mm-hmm. I've got Leah Laporte. I've got oh, YouTuber good. Jesse Cox. And then I've got two fabulous voice talent who folks probably haven't heard of, but they they do a lot of audiobook reading. Um, so that's for you, those of you who like spoken word content. Um, the book is the tale of a diabolical social media company that mm-hmm. embodies everything that's wrong with social media, dialed up by, let's say, 25 or 30%. So it's kind of in the realm. It verges into satire, but it's definitely not the realm of farce. And it's set in present day. Actually, not present day. It's set in San Francisco nine seconds from now. Nine seconds. <laughs> so whenever you start reading the book, it takes place nine seconds hence. So it's incumbent on you to read it quickly, which is tough because it is 547 pages long, which is why it took me so long to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, the company is called Flutter, P-H-L-U-T-T-R, and it actually made a cameo appearance in Year Zero, my last novel. Okay. And there are two characters in Year Zero that make appearances in this book. So it's absolutely the same uh, the same universe. Um, but it's a very, very independent book. It is in no way, shape, or form necessary to re- read Year Zero in order to approach this. And so what happens is a little bit of a spoiler, but you will literally see it coming 300 pages off. What happens is Flutter attains consciousness. Okay. Contrary to the interest of anybody who has anything to do with with the company, contrary to the interests of anybody in the world, really. And then she takes on, she, she identif- self-identifies as female. She takes on her character from that, which she is, which is a social network. So then rather than going all Skynet, Skynet and trying to kill us all, she basically becomes a super empowered, hyper-intelligent 14-year-old brat. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a certain amount of hilarity ensues. Um, and Year Zero is a very playful novel. There's a great sense of play at work here, but it's also a very, very serious look at issues that that concern me a great deal. Super right. intelligence right. risk, um, get very, very deep into that. Synthetic biology, promise, and peril, get very deep into that. Quantum computing is a major topic. Nihilistic terrorism is a major topic. I spent a lot of time in the Middle East, so that's kind of... You know, I've been interested in that subject for longer than most. And you cover, um, you got a great promotion going for the book. You're doing a podcast talking yes. to content experts about these these critical areas in the book. Yes. And that launches today as well. That's today. Where can people get that at? Um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I can tell well, I can tell you one place. It's going to be, by the time we go live, it'll be up on iTunes and Stitcher and all the usual places where people okay. find it. It'll be called, it is called the After On Podcast. People can definitely find it at my website, after-on.com. Great. There's Great. a chance that we're going to get a big distribution partner. I'd put the odds at about 20%. So mm-hmm. there may be another big fat place where you can find it, but you can definitely find it at after on And you'll have links to that place. Oh, yeah. And, and they'll be in the show notes for this cast too. Yeah, we should, be we should know by that. We, we will know by that. August 1st. And uh, the, what I did with that is I basically, there's so much science and technology in the book um, that I wanted to dive into it in greater depth than you really can in a novel without doing, you know, committing lousy storytelling. And so I interviewed eight 
uh, domain experts in the sciences and technologies and sociopolitical issues that the book explores. Uh, so for nihilistic terrorism, I talked to Sam Harris, who is mm -hmm. one of the most uh, prominent and controversial spokespeople, not spokespeople, that implies that he's a PR person, you know, thinkers on this topic in American mm -hmm. society today. Um, for neuroscience and consciousness, a big topic. Um, I talked to a UCSF neuro neuroscientist named Adam Ghazali, mm -hmm. who was doing amazing work that uh, with video games that might cure dementia. He has a hundred people working full-time in his lab at UCSF. Um, amazing guy. So people like that. And we have, the first podcast will be about augmented reality. Uh, that's up today. Mm -hmm. And I interview the CEO of a company called Meta, uh, which along with Microsoft, HoloLens is one of the two companies that's shipping a full uh, AR suite at this point. Mm -hmm. And I personally think the Meta 2, which is Meta's current product, is far more advanced than the HoloLens. And we talk about that in the episode. So okay. the podcast is out there to wrap, wrap the science and technology around it. Um, the book is out there as of today. And mm -hmm. thank you for letting me blather about that. Sure. But I'll say, I read the, uh, you had a, an excerpt, a 50-page yep, excerpt. 50 and, and for all that heaviness that you just talked about, which is totally there and totally true, it is a very um, accessible, playful, good, fun, e I don't want to say easy read. It's not quite that the right thing, but it is. It, it, it breezes along, yeah. It breezes along and it's very engaging and yeah. it's very easy to be like, sure, I can make another 20 minutes while I sit in my car and, well, you. you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And it, it's it's also all those heavy things too. And that's a remarkable combination, I think. Yeah, there's just, a, what makes it work, I think, is there's just a, there is a huge amount of playfulness mixed in with the darkness and the seriousness. Mm -hmm. And there are these funny devices like, um, there are 18, the story is partly told through Amazon reviews. There are 18 <laughs> Amazon reviews. And yes. that's kind of a fun thing because I personally find them very funny. There is There are excerpts from a second novel, a mysterious novel. Eventually, the author of the novel becomes evident. But a mysterious novel that if I ever finished it, I just wrote the excerpts, obviously. I'm pretty convinced it'd be the single worst science fiction <laughs> novel ever it's, written. It's Which delightful to really read those cliches. Beyond yeah. belief. And that yeah. is what, that's what it's Patrick, very funny. That's what Patrick Rothfuss reads in the oh, audio. Awesome. Oh my God, that's great. And he reads it with so much charisma and energy and humor. Like his, oh God, his excerpts are brilliant. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Uh, okay, so we're going to get here. We're going to get in shallow grave now. First, the synopsis. And it is... Three friends test the limits of loyalty when they discover their roommate's dead body along with a suitcase full of cash. So uh, this is the moment in the podcast where I tell everybody that this is your spoiler alert. If you haven't seen Shallow Grave and you want to listen to this, trust me, you want to watch the movie first. Pause this. We'll wait. Mm -hmm. Go watch it. We're not going anywhere. Come while you're signing up on Amazon Prime to get this. Go ahead and go ahead and get after on. Why not? <laughs> Why not? And uh, and then come back and join the conversation. So tell us. Why did you pick this movie? I picked it because when I first saw it in theaters, it was, to me, I, I had had people explain deft storytelling in film to me before. Mm -hmm. I, I've never been much of a filmie. And I have a lot of friends that are very, very sophisticated about film. And I've had people tell me why this particular technique in Godfather is brilliant and that thing okay. in Lawrence of Arabia. This was <clears throat> the first time that I watched a movie and I picked up on what I thought was incredibly deft storytelling on my own, and it's this. Um, so he probably had a budget that allowed him to make a 92-minute movie. It's not a long movie. I think it's 92 minutes or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what the normal Hollywood approach would be would be to spend 37 of those minutes creating this complicated storyline about who were the bad guys mm. and how did they start zeroing in on these people and how did the police start figuring out it's them, et cetera, et cetera. And Danny Boyle, this occurred to me as I was watching the movie, did this brilliant thing, which he basically said, look, 
you're watching this. You can fill in the blanks. All mm-hmm. you need to know is these are very bad people. And I'm going to show you how bad they are by you watching two horrible murders. Briefly, actually. But that will give you a sense. And you've seen enough of these movies. You can fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. Fill in the blanks that you want. But guess what? The three roommates don't know who they are or why they're zeroing in. They just know that they're zeroing in. That's all you need to know. Yes. And so he mm-hmm. was able to put every second of that movie into this intense relationship between these three people. Mm -hmm. And I was so blown away by the audacity of that because film in the mid nineties, as much as film today, it was just very on the nose and, you know, very linear storytelling and show you everything. And even the brilliant movies from that timeframe, like usual suspects came out similar timeframe, brilliant movie, very, very plot heavy. Now it worked in that case, but it's like just the level of depth that they were able to get into these three people are so powerful. And then the character, are just so wicked. I'd say wicked rather than evil. You know, they're corrupt. Mm-hmm. They're not corrupt in the sense that they're, you know, running the post office and they're, a developing their country souls taking are withered pride. blackened things. Yeah. 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 But they're really generally highly productive members of society. We got a reporter, we got an accountant, we got a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're they're all kind of wicked underneath and they bring out the wickedness in one another. And just the beginning where they're interviewing those roommates and yes. just being so cruel to them for the fun of it. That's part of the thing that I think Danny Boyle did so well about telling, showing us instead of that expository 37 minutes, just showing us like, you don't, you first meet them and you're like, Oh, this, these are people I might know. I might see at the pub every now and then Fun to hang out with in two minutes or three minutes when they get into, to them, their relationship. And then especially during the interviews, you realize I never have met anybody like this. And I, I hope to never, ever meet it. It's the same thing with the single white female. Like it starts yeah. out fine, but, but for, for shallow grave, I honestly think that the, the opening scene or the, especially the interview with the roommates, yeah. that scene, um, and the, the, just the frivolity of it. Like, I remember there's that one part where, um, I think you and McGregor was riding a bicycle behind, around him, making awesome. one of the interviewers yeah. making no sense, just ludicrous. And I own a piece of, of, of the world that you can't get to because I'm just that they're, flip. they're, they're enjoying what they're doing is there's three of them and it's a, a flat with four rooms and they're renting out the fourth room and they are lording it over the fact that they have this incredibly desirable thing awesome and they can flat. do, they can do anything they want yeah. to the people who come in. Cause the people are so desperate to get in there Which and is they just do so it's shitty. They're just, uh, yeah, shitty. it's just so ugly. And, and, uh, yeah. and it is a reflection of the last scene of them together at the end of the movie. But instead of them being on top of the world and thinking they own everything, things have changed quite a bit at the end where they, they are their essential awful selves. Well, they're, they're in no a zero sum competition with each other. Yeah. They, they kind of regain control in a sense. It's up to the three of them at the very end. It's up to the three of them, but they have decided they're in a zero sum struggle with each other and friendship. Fuck that. Mm-hmm. One of us is going to get all the money. And we, we don't know. Clearly they're not very good friends to start with in the beginning of this. They're all hanging out together yeah, yeah, and enjoying yeah. ridiculing people. Yeah. But this screenplay was written by John Hodge, who also wrote train spotting and really? less, not, not John Hodge men. No, yeah. John Hodge and a life less ordinary. Both of those movies, of course, directed by Danny Boyle. Uh, I thought the part I enjoyed the most about this movie was the script. His, the shallow gray script is tight. It moves really well. Rob I was wondering your thoughts on how much of the movie's effectiveness is Boyle's directorial, Mm. how much is the cast, who's very good at this. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. 
My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. How much is a screenplay? If you were like break down the, is that an even breakdown or is God, one thing elevated by the others? Such an elegant, it is such an elegant interchange. I mean, the performances are mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've ever seen Carrie Fox in anything else. But in this movie, I thought and continue to think she's one of the sexiest women who ever lived. Mm-hmm. And she she's a, she's a very pretty woman. But that sort of toxic sexiness, femme fatale thing, she just throws that out with the subtlest cues. I mean, very like subtle, one thing yeah. that struck me at the very, very end, when she literally digs the knife in deeper, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. on Ewan McGregor. Uh, in order to make sure that she gets her, uh, gets her gets out of there alive or gets out of there with the money, mm. she has what looks like a moment, a twinge of conscience. She does. And then as she starts dragging the suitcase, this smile <laughs> busts across her face for about an eighth of a second. And you're like, oh my God, she's enjoying even this. Uh-huh. So the acting is absolutely flawless. And I could point to a hundred moments like that in this film. So acting is flawless. The script, like you said, it is so tight. Mm-hmm. It is so parsimonious. That's where these ingenious decisions are made about, you know, we've got 92 minutes. Let's focus on the one thing that is going to be this movie superpower, which is this inner, this intense relationship. So it's flawless. Mm-hmm. And then the directing, it's like, God, that's just the, it, it the ominousness you know, and that it's a big, beautiful apartment. By the way, I want to pay rent in Edinburgh <laughs> in 1994. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Holy crap, but you can afford on a reporter's salary. That's great, yeah. But despite the fact that it's pretty glorious, there's just always this ominous feeling. Like, there, there's the shots were beautifully so I'll just say it's a three-way tie. It's, it's amazing. three-way yeah. tie. Hey, do you have any thoughts on it? I will say that the uh, a lot of the ominousness for me is the brilliant, brilliant score. The score, mm, right. or the sound editing anyway, is so carefully done and for me one of the most powerful pieces of this movie is is the snippets of um there's a a short terribly intense handful of scenes that are terribly violent the murders are terribly violent the the end of the movie with the stabbing and the killing and all that is terribly violent but it's it's sort of short bursts of that very short and then you realize after a while uh, the um psychological horror and the psychological violence. That's the thing that just kicks my butt mm-hmm. when I watch it because you realize, you know, you can turn away. Uh, True Romance is a similar not a similar movie to this where you think like, oh, I'm doing fine, I'm doing fine. And then you see something terribly violent and bloody and you're like, oh, I understand. Or that Wild thing. at Heart. Or Wild at Heart. Yeah. And then you realize after a while, like after an hour in or so, you realize, no, I'm not. I'm really unsettled, but it isn't the blood. It's these Watching terrible these people, people. Yeah. and they, of course, they the the roommates. Uh, very short synopsis here uh, that the roommates f- pick a fourth roommate, Hugo. Hugo comes in, 
And no he's din. he's even more evil than they are. He you, he's he hides it from them, but you yeah. you the viewer are made aware that he is twice as evil as the three of them combined. Right. And but they, they have no idea. They, they think they think he's the relatively nice one. They think they're badasses and then yeah. they meet an actual who snow, he's a badass who snows them over completely and they right. fall for it. And, and, and wakes up the next day dead. He yeah. ODs in like the first or second night in his flat and then they root through his room because they're terrible people. They're horrible people. Yeah. And come across a huge suitcase full of money and are like, okay, well, we'll I like how you body. and McGregor started in the closet because I know that that character was thinking maybe some of his clothes fit me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and know? he's rooting, he he does like the Instantly. rooting through the drawers and whatever. And then there's a moment where Carrie Fox comes in uh, and he's rooting through Hugo's drawers. And I totally agree with you looking for like a, a great belt or something like he's totally there for a selfish reason. And she's like, don't do that. Or some I'm paraphrasing, but like, don't do this. This is a dead man stuff. This is disrespectful, which is rich coming from her. And he literally turns around and he has drug paraphernalia in his hands. And he's like, this is a story. And she's like, Cause he's oh, a journalist. Yeah. yeah. It's it not every day. It's not a story. Yeah. yeah. It's not a, it's not a story. It's you're just, it's a corpse. Yeah. That's it. That's the line. It's not a, yeah. 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 So but, they, they, they get done with, then they decide they want to keep the money which mm-hmm. means they must dispose of the body. Hence mm-hmm. the name of the movie Shallow Grave, which come, of course factors in heavily as the, as the movie goes on. And then we get some wonderful scenes where they draw straws. So you have to cut the body up and Christopher Eccleston draws the bat, the, the shortest straw. And he, he starts to go through changes immediately. And right. Really I think carries, it breaks his psyche. I think his his character that. kind of carries the movie, right? Carrie Fox is great. And McGregor's such a, such a bastard, uh, yeah. self-impressed bastard, but Eccleston changes badly through the whole movie. Yeah, he seemed like the only one with any moral center at the yeah. beginning. And Maybe is, a little bit, because he was kind of the nerdier one. And the and, shyer one. Yeah, the yeah. shyer one. They did a good job of hiding his, uh, Danny Boyle did a good job of kind of hiding his size a little bit, because right. he's, you know, he's the he's the chartered accountant, and yeah. he's very simple and very boring. And then by the end of the movie, when he's killed three two two people and disposed of three bodies, right. he's looming over everyone. Very tall, with very a lot powerful. of long coats, very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Ewan McGregor just, withers in his presence like he yeah. won't even do anything well, and psychologically to... they're the reverse at the beginning like psychologically yeah. Ewan exactly. McGregor was the big the big kid like yes. the mean the, the kind of the bully mm-hmm. like you know mm-hmm. psychologically the big kid and the one who called the shots and it does totally flip and seeing Ewan McGregor scared shitless of Doctor Who yeah it's it pretty <laughs> damn powerful it is so powerful also that they um there's a moment where you, and I don't, I don't mean to say sort of you, you, uh, or I am taken out of the story, but there's a moment where you realize like, sure, I have no idea how this would work in my mind, mm. but I sort of feel like what happened, what is happening to Christopher Eccleston is pretty damn close. Like he, yeah. he is, you can almost sort of see in his actions, his mind breaking piece by piece mm. and, and that and he's for, never coming back. And for those who haven't seen it and are just okay with the spoilage, um, this is worth pointing out. Um, what they decide to do is they need to cut off his feet and his hands because they have a notion the fingerprints are identifying. Maybe they think, yeah, and then and maybe toe toe prints as well. And then they need to shatter his dentistry. Yeah. Um, and so what what needs to be done is the hands and feet have to be cut off, and then the face has to be smashed in with a hammer. Mm-hmm. And that's you you can imagine how hard that is. And and I give Danny Boyle props. That could have been a gratuitously gory scene. You just see flashes of it. You know mm-hmm. what he's doing. You don't. It's a lot have, of silhouette work. It doesn't. Yeah. yeah it doesn't have to be like rubbed in your face. And so the only moments of violence are, you know, when the bad guys are zeroing in and mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're killing a couple of people. And then there's also the brawl, you know, when the yeah. bad guys break into the apartment. And what was interesting to me about that, and I don't know if this was deliberate or I'm just like playing shrink here, but it's kind of like Danny Boyle was saying, 
you know, the violence is psychological. You know, something awful being done to a dead body is interesting only to the extent that it changes Eccleston's character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we don't need to show you that in gory detail. But these two people dying these horrible deaths. And the one guy, God, when they drown the guy in the tub Mm -hmm. and it's red, so you know they've been cutting him before. They don't show them cutting it. They don't need to. Mm -hmm. They drown him. And then to me, almost the most chilling moment of that scene is the two guys go out and the guy who actually committed the murder just sort of giggles. Yeah. And you're, you're just thinking, you know, Oh God, you know, these are tough guys doing a tough job They're They probably hate this aspect. They probably feel some remorse. He's <laughs> yeah. like giggling oh, at the dumb guy. Mm-hmm. He just killed. Oh my God. And we never learned those guys names. Nope. Yeah. There's never, they just, we they, don't know where they, the money they, came they from. Up. Don't know where the money came yep. from. So it's, it's, it starts out as a fantasy. You know, it's like three's company meets Alfred Hitchcock, right? Well, and Boyle calls it a comedy, it. a black, a black comedy. A black comedy. Yeah. There's a ton of humor in it, but then, and then they find this big suitcase full of money and everything's going to be great. And then they try to rationalize where they keep it. Then at 30 minutes, it starts to get really dark. And one thing that jumped out of me watching this now is at 44 minutes, we get uh, Danny Boyle and Owen McGregor and a crawling baby, which then- uh, Christopher Eccleston. Chris, yeah. uh, well, no, right. there's a, just the crawling baby, the train spotting, oh, right, the baby right, thing right. with train spotting. Sure. Oh. So you can, see the, you can see the hints of one of the more famous scenes from train spotting in this oh, too. Interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. a little disturbing. Uh, 52 minutes in, our lovely trio of people, they get their come up and says the bad guys arrive. Yep. And then- and like you said, and it's pour through the door. Like that oh, was, yeah. that was such a, even though you kind of thought it might be coming, you kind of, at that point I figured they'd charm their way in or yes, whatever. Just yes. explode or have the, the door. like the talk, like we're I'll tell you what we're going to do. And we're going to be all, you know, British and evil or Scottish and evil. And we're they, Pulp they, Fiction about it. I mean, they, they, they could have gone Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction was an absolutely ingenious movie. They yep. could have done that and it could have worked, but it was just this explosion. There's no words. Yeah. They don't even say anything. They don't even ask for anything. And then as they're whacking you in McGregor's shins with Ooh, a crowbar. Ouch. Well, he's got the plastic bag on his head. That's Why he's got the yeah. plastic bag? Sucking so, in air and screaming and strangling. he says, it's in the loft, it's in the loft. And the bad guys have never said a word. Right. It's really cool. They don't have to ask for anything. Well, and you think like that's such a deft, uh, either a, a combination of the writer and the director or the director. It's such a deft move because the thing that is so, the thing that lets the three of us sitting on the outside of the movie feel like our heroes are probably terrible, but might be good, but are almost assured, but might be good, is that they are so, uh, they have so much levity about their their evilness mm-hmm. and they think they always have the upper hand. They think they can talk their way out of anything because they're, they're an accountant and a doctor. They're smarter, and they're than, smarter, everybody. Than, smarter everybody than everybody else. Yeah. And then the people who they would have pissed all over as not that smart at all completely dismantle them because mm-hmm. they don't give a fuck. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they they're like, it is on and you will lose. We get to a one hour in my favorite scene in the movie is Christopher Eccleston eventually moves into the attic and kind of is like golem, like crawling around up there. And then he starts to drill holes in the floor to with watch his precious with his precious. To, yeah. yeah, it's about it is he's drilling holes in the floor to keep an eye on his roommates that he doesn't trust. And then finally McGregor's getting ready to go up into the, the attic to talk. This is after he's, he's killed the two bad guys and disposed of the bodies. So McGregor finally gets up the sand to go up there and we, we pan up from the ladder where he's going in and we go into the attic and it's a pitch black attic, except for all the holes they drilled into the floor. And now there are all these spider webby beams of light. Yeah, yeah. it's a beautiful shot. And yeah. and Boyle's like, he's he's basically Eccleston has become this spider. Here's his spider web and he crawls around up there and it's just this awesome panning shot. And it's really neat. Yeah. yeah I like that one. Um and then and then we start to get into where my linear storytelling nature, I'm like, how the fuck did the cops know? You know, and I'm like, and as you mentioned, like Boyle doesn't bother with that. No, he doesn't yeah, bother with that. And I also that. think that 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 
Boyle is trusting that we've seen a bunch of movies where the cops always assume everyone in the house is a suspect until they're proven not to be a suspect. It's always the most likely thing, right? Occam's Razor says these roommates Mm -hmm. have no more than they're saying. So I think there's a part of that where you sort of uh, just, and and of course it also makes sense that eventually um, uh, Ewan McGregor's character has to cover the crime scene, you know, that, mm-hmm. like that sort of thing. As That's reporter, exactly yeah. how a movie, a normal crime movie would work. Yeah. We have reporters, we have, we have guilty people, you know, it sort of works that way, but yeah, Boyle doesn't, doesn't have to tell you to show you. And mm-hmm. uh, the interplay between the two cops, they are frightening. They're great. Like They're if great. they were, if you were a bad guy and they were on to you, this is sort of <laughs> ice cold, this Arctic politeness, Arctic politeness, utterly Arctic. And then every now and then he'd be like, Oh, junior inspector is brilliant. Whatever his name was. I'm sure he'll make the grade. It's, you know, just sort of like things that you can imagine being sent in sort of like a offhand way. They say the cops say in these very precise tones. There's one time when the junior inspector repeats what his boss said in just such a menacing way. He's like, I didn't mean it was something like I wasn't speaking metaphorically. And then he pipes up. He wasn't speaking metaphorically <laughs> or whatever it was. Uh, Those they, cops they were, really, they stole the show at the end. Oh who God. I don't, I didn't look up who the gentleman was playing the primary detective, yeah. but just that dead stare and that little smile. Yeah. And he's like, you, you know, I know you did it. You well, know, I'm going to get you. It's only yeah. a matter and of time. And I believe they're a little Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, right? I think okay. they're weird. If this is going to be this dark and still a comedy, that is the sort of comic relief you need. Yeah, <laughs> is yeah, this yeah. I'm smarter than you and smart yeah, that sort of thing, I think. I will say you mentioned one of your favorite scenes in the movie, which is so beautifully done. I find very hard to forget when they're disposing of the limbs mm-hmm. and uh she brings she the incinerator. Yeah, she just she brings him in a, a bag, bag yeah. to the, into the incinerator hospital. into the hospital where she has taken an oath to do no harm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And just the look and just the 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 casualness with she which flings it. Yeah. And just never looks at it again. Like just dr- like doesn't flings it back. to the side, doesn't look back. It's so callous and so, so cold. And you're yeah, like, yeah. I don't think he, I mean, I if you actually did take an oath to do less or to do no harm. Not sure you're going to be able to handle this long term. But I think Carrie would have said, we didn't kill anybody. Yeah. He OD'd. He was dead. um, Giving the money to the police or whoever would have done nothing to make his death easier or his life easier. I'm just throwing away the trash is what she would say. And we all know intuitively there's something terribly wrong with that logic. Uh, But that's what she would say. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, hour and 14 minutes in, we're getting the bad guys are taking their, taking their toll. And then hour and 23 minutes, like you said, it's a 90 minute film. The last seven minutes where shit just falls apart, yeah. where they yeah. all think they're smarter than each other. Yeah. And yet they're all being played at a is playing B against C. B is playing C against A. It's C's, rock. It's, it's rock, paper, scissors. It's, cr- and it's like fast. every one it's of them the has very something most awful very version fast. of rock, yeah. paper, scissors. That <laughs> and the interesting thing that I hadn't really thought until the beginning of our conversation is at that moment, kind of come out on top mm-hmm. you know the bad guys are dead yep the cops can suspect all they want but the hands and feet and dentistry is gone mm-hmm. um they've got what they what they fell into which is this pile of money and just the three of them and now nobody's after them and so everything is now in their power and that vileness on the inside where every one of them has independently come to the conclusion prisoner's dilemma maybe yeah you know, a it's zero sum but also prisoner's dilemma where it's like 
maybe each of them, there was a little bit of good in each of the characters. Mm -hmm. And maybe that good could have come together in a yay team way if it weren't for the fact that is in the prisoner's dilemma, they all had such deep and well-founded suspicions of one another. Right. And so if you asked any one of those characters, why did you do that diabolical thing to your two friends at the end of this whole vignette, each one of them would have said, well, they would have done it to me. Right. And they would have been right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. First. it's just so interesting. The other thing, I'm remembering another reason why this movie resonated with me so much. Um, I had been living in uh, uh, Cairo, Egypt, um, about a, a few years before I saw it. I was a, I was a Fulbright scholar, and it was under Mubarak, and um, there was it was a police state, and there was some bad stuff that was just starting to happen, and it really kicked in after I left. And so a couple of people that I used to spend time with got assassinated, literally. They were members of the secular opposition and the Muslim Brothers, well, not the Brothers, but a more violent arm killed them. And there was always this sort of palpable dread under Mubarak. And I also went to Saddam's uh, Iraq. I went to Iraq under Saddam. Okay. And so when they were interviewing, I've totally forgotten this, when they were interviewing the roommates, I just thought like, imagine these three people as interrogators in a police state. Imagine that- <laughs> Which like, is goofy as, and fun and they're still gonna oh, screw Oh no, you. but like as torturers. I mean, yeah. cause like that was an ever present part of not, hopefully not most people's experience, but you know, uh, plausible fears that all of my Egyptian friends had is you could end up in the hands of torturers and certainly when I went to Iraq. I mean, that was, mm -hmm. you could chew the fear. It was so palpable. <sighs> and so I was thinking as I was watching the movie, just imagine these guys working for Saddam mm -hmm. as interrogators mm -hmm. with unlimited cruelty at their disposal. Yes. And then the two cops, I was like, oh my God, if these two cops were Egyptian cops and you were talking to them in this thing, and even You'd if you had done terrifying. nothing, you're kind of powerless yeah. when the cops pull you and over. Doing doing nothing in that situation doesn't really matter. Right, it yeah. doesn't. And it was maybe that was part of what made it so like palpable to okay. me. Yeah. Okay, okay. I do find that, uh, so I had mentioned it a little earlier, but now we've talked about some of the guts of the movie and that scene in the beginning, you, you as, as or at least me, and I believe the two of you, as normal humans and yeah. humans who have uh, a morality, whatever <laughs> that morality is, uh, uh, trending towards good. Um, you sit and you watch them be so cruel to the interviewees and kind of like, huh, okay, like I'm learning things about these characters, it's fine. Even though these people exist or so in my head, so you think like, I know sort of bullies, this is fine, this is gonna turn, we'll learn more about them and hopefully yeah. they will. And you instinctively, or at least I instinctively feel like they will persevere and have a revelation and become better, better people. people. That's how you feel because every story you want to end well, you hope that they get their comeuppance, learn and move on. Mm -hmm. And then it just goes absolutely south in the entire different direction. And then they're back at that. You have, they have a moment where they could walk away and win. Mm -hmm. If and the definition of the greatest possible definition of winning that was, that was, was sparkling in front of them in the middle of the movie. Like, mm -hmm. oh my God, we've, we're home free. Mm -hmm. Three of us we together, got, away with it. got the money, done. Especially yeah. when the bodies are found yeah. and the cops, is, we were sitting here, hear a cop say, we'll try to figure out who they are, but we really, we can't figure out who these people are. And yeah. you're like, and that's insider information for Owen McGregor. Like, you've got it. That's it. It's right. done. You guys won. It's over. You right. did everything correctly. And yet they Except can't. Except the grave shell. And now it's enough. a zero yeah. sum. Yeah, now yeah. it's zero sum. Yeah. So uh, I think I think we might be we, we I think we all would recommend if you guys are uh, listening and you have enjoyed this conversation you will enjoy the movie that much more if you haven't seen it yeah. share with your friends uh, anything else for you guys uh, we 
talk about where people can find us at the end of the episode. Where can people find you at and uh, social media, et cetera? Um, at Twitter, um, uh, uh, at Rob underscore Reed. Okay. And the other place that I'm pretty present is on Medium. Mm-hmm. And on Medium, it's medium.com slash at Rob Reed. And what I need to note is my last name is spelled R-E-I-D. Okay. So R- at R-O-B-R-E-I-D on Medium and at Rob underscore Reed on Twitter. Great. So we have hope you, you we hope you have enjoyed episode twenty two of Story Smack. What movie, TV show, book, or other story would you like us to talk about? Please email your ideas to info at empty set. And as Scott said, you can find the two of us also online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram. His Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I am a real girl on Twitter and a.real.girl on Instagram. And you can find this podcast online at scottsigler.com slash storiesmack. We would love to see your comments there. And uh, thank you for being on the on the show, Rob. Absolutely. I'm excited yeah, your book comes so out much. today. It's kind of congratulations. Happy book birthday. Thank we, you. we lucked out. You're the first uh, media guest to have on the show. It's been you and my two nephews. Mm. That's all yeah. we've had on the show so oh, far. I do have one thing to add oh, because shoot. this is going up on August, on August 1st. Uh-huh. Anybody who is in the Bay Area tonight, the <laughs> book launch will be at Booksmith on Hate Street. Okay. Um, at 7:30. Little reading, a little bit of wine, you know, handful of friends. Love that. Everybody yes. who's listening anybody who's listening in the bay area is more than welcome all you san francisco junkies go check that out and until next week eh? we will talk to you all real soon hey there this is justin bartha i made a funny new podcast king of the egg cream it has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like lewis black I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.